All right, if you would turn with me to Psalm 36. That's what we'll be in this afternoon. So Psalm 36. And once you have turned there, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is the word of the Lord. The title of tonight's sermon is A Precious Contrast. A Precious Contrast. Uh, In Psalm 36, David sharply contrasts the wicked with the holiness of God, and yet proclaims God's love for his people despite our sin. And my goal for tonight is that we would not just know these truths, but that the Spirit would enliven our hearts for us to truly be in awe of a God who could love people such as us, and that we would be drawn to worship and obedience as a result. So as I alluded to in the title, uh, David presents a sharp contrast Um, And that happens in the first six verses. The first half of that contrast is in verses 1 through 4 when he talks about the wicked. Verse 1 reads, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. And now there is some discussion on the translation of the first part of that verse. Um, As the ESV says, uh, transgression is almost personified as enticing the wicked, whispering to the wicked, getting the wicked to sin. Um, On the other hand, others translate it as David is meditating on the wicked man. He is meditating on who the wicked man is, how he acts. Um, Regardless, the subsequent five or four verses then proceed to describe the wicked man. And the first um, and primary description we see is that there is no fear of God before his eyes. The wicked man has no concept that God judges the thoughts and the the actions and the sins of man, that everything is under his dominion. He has no concept that every single word he says, every careless word, every desire will be judged. Um, This is also exemplified in in Psalm 10, which describes the wicked man. And in that Psalm, the wicked man says, there is no God. God is forgotten and will never see. He will not call into account. The wicked man does not believe in judgment, and therefore there is no fear of God before his eyes. Now, before moving on, uh, we need to define who this wicked man is. And thankfully for us, the Apostle Paul has interpreted this psalm 
for us uh, in Romans 3. Uh, in Romans 3, we don't have to turn there, but, but the Apostle Paul is actually um, proclaiming that all of humanity is under the dominion of sin. Jew, Gentile, man, woman, all are under the dominion of sin, and all are by nature sinful. And at the end of that, he concludes with a wide range of Old Testament texts that explain this. And the last of those texts is Psalm 36.1. There is no fear of God before his eyes. And so because the Apostle Paul uses this verse, we can be very clear that the wicked man is not just talking about some extra wicked person, uh, maybe just murderers only. It's talking about all of humanity. All of humanity is by nature sinful. And so therefore this description, the first half of this contrast, is talking about all of us. And so from David's time to Paul to present day, this is a universal truth. Men by nature do not fear God. And this takes the place of not believing that there is a future judgment, um, but it can also take more insidious forms, such as even viewing God as optional or unnecessary. There's a sign near uh, where I live on an old church building that says, feeling puzzled? Maybe God is your missing piece. And while that sounds cute or pithy, um, it is unbelievably dangerous because it presents God as optional. If you need another tool in your toolkit when you're unhappy or you need help, maybe then you can go to God, but besides that, you don't need him. And that's the best case scenario. Worst case scenario is you believe the deeper lie that you don't need a missing piece, that you're a whole in yourself, and therefore God is, is completely unnecessary. So there is no fear of God before their eyes. And so as we read this, we realize that all of humanity is being described here. And now as believers, we are covered by the blood of Christ. We have been made new, but our natural man still exists. Our natural man still wages war against the spirit. The fleshly man still rears its head. And so it is wise and prudent to study the tendencies of our old selves so we can battle it and put on Christ. Moving on to verse two, um, it says, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. You'll notice this, this great switch here. Though man should have the fear of God before his eyes, now he, he replaces God and, and flatters himself in his own eyes. He is obsessed with thinking about himself, thinking about his wants, his desires, his abilities, all the things that are pleasing to self. Um, and we can see that in our culture, right? It is the culture of individualism. And that also invades the church in a lot of ways. We think, how can musical worship best make me feel? How can I read myself into this biblical text? How can the church serve me instead of I serve the church? We flatter ourselves in our own eyes. And that leads to a complete blindness of sin. That is, iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Self-obsession when we should be focusing on God's glory, self-obsession makes us look at our own glory. And so therefore, we don't acknowledge or see sin. God calls us to think about what is pure and just and lovely and holy. And yet we spend all of our days just laser focused on ourselves. And so instead of seeing and hating sin, the wicked man just looks at himself. And so the lack of the fear of the Lord and the flattering of oneself, these, these form two pillars that lead to a wide range of sin. And it is very, there's, there's many theories on, okay, what is the, the single root cause of sin? Some people would say pride or, or unbelief. And I don't mean to add these two pillars into that framework, but I think it's a useful uh, way to think about our sin in that we have this great exchange 
of instead of fearing God, we fear ourselves. And this takes the form of instead of fearing God's word and elevating that, we elevate our own word, our own truth. Instead of listening to God's commands, we listen to the commands of the culture. Instead of submitting ourselves to God, we submit ourselves to our own feelings. So no fear of God and flattery of self. And so the psalmist now transitions in verses 3 and 4 to talk about how those two pillars lead to more and more sin. Verse 3 says, The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. So sin is like poison ivy spreading over all parts of the body, and, and David specifically calls out the mouth, which at first seems odd, but I think we'll see that the mouth is, is the root of much of our trouble. Um, James talks about this too. He says that the, the mouth is, or the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It is set apart among the members, staining the whole body. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And so James, like David, explicitly calls out the mouth because the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And if we've already seen with Paul that the, the, the heart is full of wickedness and evil and sin, then therefore the trouble and deceit caused by our mouth should not actually be surprising. And again, lest that we think that this is only talking about um, pathological liars and not ourselves, uh, I think Jeff Robinson, his book, Taming the Tongue, does a good job of calling out how all of us uh, struggle with our mouths. Uh, he says that we slander or talk ill about others simply for the purpose of building ourselves up so we feel better. We gossip so we can feel superior to other people. Um, we, we compliment people, but really it's just flattery. We just, we just want them to like us. And we, we grumble and complain about our circumstances um, in a way that seems unimportant. It's, it's not that big of a deal, but, but we are claiming that a sovereign God is messed up. And that actually we would do a better job if we would be the sovereign God of the universe. And so, it is, as it has been said, it is not if you sin in this area, it's how. And our mouths, like the wicked man, create trouble and deceit. So continuing on on his, his dark description of the wicked, David says in the latter half of verse 3 that the wicked man has ceased to act wisely and do good. That when wickedness and evil enter, wisdom and goodness leave. They do not coexist. And not only do they not coexist in our own hearts, we actually spend time celebrating wickedness and evil in other people. The Apostle Paul talks about that in Romans 1, when, when they not only know that these things are wrong, but they do them themselves, and they actually celebrate when other people do them. And so, we're now at this point where, where there's been a putting off of good. And one commentator says at this point that, that the sins of omission, ceasing to act wisely and do good, not doing what is right, leads to sins of commission, or doing something wrong. And that is verse 4. It says, He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Uh, the picture David is painting here is, is one of extreme intentionality. On his bed, when he wakes up in the morning, the wicked man thinks about how he can sin that day. What, what conversations he can have that would elevate himself over others, how he can cut people down with his words, how he can lust and whore over the things of this world, over the things of God. And when he goes to bed, he plays back situations in his head. There, there's an intentionality of, okay, I could have said this, or I could have done this to make it more enjoyable, to, to serve myself instead of God. He's like, like a naval captain who, who spots a hurricane, 
and turns the ship directly into the hurricane's path. There's, there's extreme intentionality to how the wicked man approaches sin. And at the end of the verse 4, we, we get this sort of summary statement. He does not reject evil. And it, it is almost like David, with the apostle Paul in Romans 3, is, is saying, behold the glory of man. Like, this is the glory of man. Wickedness and evil and sin, a complete rejection of what is good. is like showing a wild beast just, just waiting to devour with his words, with his actions, with his elevation of self, and with his lack of fear of the Lord. This is a behold moment, and it, it's disgusting. It is absolutely disgusting. And therefore, like, as we conclude this first part of the contrast, man is in a very precarious position because we know that God cannot accept wickedness and evil. Psalm 5 says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. This psalm makes clear that contrary to what our culture says, God actually hates the sin and the sinner. And now, yes, we will get to his, his abundant love for his people, but we cannot lie to ourselves on the reality of our sin, and we cannot lie to our unbelieving friends and family that God loves them, he just doesn't like their sin. God hates all evildoers, it says. He hates wickedness. Now, this leads into the second half of the contrast found in verses 5 and 6. And now, t- starting with man, he moves almost, almost abruptly to God. And as we walk through 5 and 6, I, I want us to see how the holy character of God stands in sharp contrast to the wickedness of man. Verse 5 says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. The first characteristic of God David describes here is his steadfast love. Now, Justin talked about this a little bit two weeks ago, but this is his, his hesed love or his, his covenantal, committed, non-transactional care for his people. Contrary to man, who we have defined loved as, as an emotional, temporary, up and down thing, God, by his very nature, is love. It is a committed love. It is an intentional love. He is so unlike us in our definition of love. And perhaps this is great, greatest seen in the Old Testament in the story of Israel, specifically the Exodus story. It is, it is almost with, as if God has, has preordained Israel's sin so that he may show how unique and unbelievable his steadfast love is. Think about this, that the Israelites are in Egypt and God comes to them and says, I will free you. And they say, we don't think you can. Then he frees them and brings them out of Egypt, and they're at the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's armies are there, and they doubt. They doubt again. And then he he brings them through the Red Sea. He's committed to them. And then three days later, they say, we don't have anything to to eat or to drink. And they start complaining and grumbling. And then he feeds them. And then later on in the story, they say, well, well, it's not enough. We, We want different food. And then he feeds them again. Then at at Mount Sinai, um, when Moses is meeting with God, they decide, we actually don't like this God. We want to make God in our own image in the golden calf. And he does not destroy them. Over and over again, they grumble and complain and break their end of the covenant. And yet God maintains steadfast love to his people. And that is what separates him from us. 
And that is the same God that exists today and the same steadfast love he has for them, he has for us. The second aspect of his character seen in verse five is his faithfulness. Um, his faithfulness is, is often paired with his steadfast love in the Psalms. And so we get that same covenantal connection that is a commitment. Uh, his faithfulness, one of those words, same as steadfast love that we hear a lot, uh, can also be, be seen as his resolute sameness. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is unchanging. Again, so contrary to man that is constantly changing. Another aspect of his faithfulness, no, it, though, is his inability to lie. What he has said, he will do. His word will not go out and return to him void. Every single word in his scriptures is true. He is faithful. I think a, a great example of this is, is the story of Sarah in the Old Testament. She's promised at the age of 90 that she will have a child. And maybe from a human perspective, that, that seems crazy to us, and it seemed crazy to her because she laughed. And God said, why did Sarah laugh? It's a simple but profound statement. Why would Sarah laugh at God not doing exactly what he said he would do? Why would Sarah laugh and say, God might not have the strength or the power or the ability to do this. This is impossible. It was more ridiculous for Sarah to laugh, though, that God would not do exactly what he promised to do than for her to laugh at a woman having a child at age 90. It is more ridiculous to think that one word of God could fail than the sun might not come up tomorrow. He is faithful. David then moves on to describe God's righteousness in verse 6. He says that his righteousness is like the mountains of God. The mountains of God can alternatively be translated as, as mighty mountains. Think immense, unbelievable mountains. Um, and you see this pattern here that, that David, is, is, it's almost like he can't describe God's glory, his character. His, his steadfast love extends to the heavens, his faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. This is, this is wording that, that can't wrap our minds around who God is. You notice verses 1 through 4, we can describe the wicked man. We can wrap our minds around the wicked man. We can understand our own sin, but we cannot comprehend God's character. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Righteousness is simply his character, his very being, his perfection. All that he has done in eternity past and all that he has done in eternity future is perfect. He has never had an impure thought. He's never had an impure desire. He has never had an impure action. All he does is good. Where we are unrighteous, God is righteous. The fourth aspect of God's character is his, his judgments, his justice. It says, your judgments are like the great deep. Uh, God's justice, his definition, is always right and true. And we think about mankind contrary to God. We, we call what is good evil and what is evil good. And even when we make our best guess at what is just, it is constantly changing. What was legal 50 years ago is illegal now. What is okay in one state is not okay when you go 10 miles to the east to a different state. What, what we have said is morally good in one administration changes when the administration changes. And now it's morally bad or vice versa. We have no idea what true justice is. And it's because God's justice, true justice, is like the great deep. It's like an ocean trench that humans can't explore. It's, the, the pressure is too deep. We can't comprehend God's version of justice. So just because we can't wrap our mind around what God says is just and right 
does not mean it is not just and right. He describes what is just. Romans 11 says, Oh, the depths and the riches and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. He, he, he has no, no qualms with deciding what is right and wrong because he is creator of the universe. In the final contrast between God and the wicked, David describes God's sovereignty. Sovereignty. He says, man and beast you save, O Lord. And similar to, to other psalms uh, that we've talked about, this is not an eternal salvation necessarily. This is a, a physical salvation. It is, is more likely to be interpreted as that he preserves the life of man and beast. And I think Psalm 104 does a really good job of describing this. I, I wish we could read the whole thing, but in essence it describes how, how from the rain that waters the tops of the mountains, that, that trickles into streams, that feeds the grass, that the, the deer eats, and that feeds humankind. Like God is over every single aspect of creation. That, that mankind does not sleep, animals do not awaken, that we do not eat, that we don't die, we don't give birth without God's sovereignty. And so we see that man is completely dependent. Even the food that we will eat after this, like we are completely dependent on God, but God is completely independent. He is not like us. Zooming out, uh, the wickedness of man is, is clearly contrasted with the holy character of God. And put another way, man falls short of the glory of God. If you would turn with me to Exodus 34, we see parallels um, with the language David uses here and the language that God uses to describe himself. Uh, for context, in Exodus 34, uh, Moses has asked to see God's glory on top of the mountain, and God has graciously granted his request. So we'll start in verse 5. Verse 5 of Exodus 34 reads, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. God reveals himself as steadfastly loving, as faithful and just here in a very similar way that David is talking about him in, in Psalm 36. And this is, this is important because we see that these characteristics are, are in essence the, the glory of God. That when God reveals his glory, he, he uses words to describe himself. And so we see that, that this is the glory of God. And all Moses can do in that situation is bow down and worship. So man, on the other hand, cannot match this glory. And that, that puts emphasis when Paul says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of God's perfect character. We fall short of being loving and faithful and just and righteous. We are not like God. And that contrast, in, in a way, is God's way of helping us see his holiness more and more clearly. As humans, we, we need big distinctions to distinguish between things. I, I remember when I was uh, growing up, my, my family went to Utah to a national park for vacation. And we were in the park all day, and it was night, and I was tired. And my brother was going on and on about how we need to go back in the park because we need to see the stars. Now, in my infinite wisdom, I knew I had seen stars before, and hotel TV was pretty darn good. 
But um, he eventually convinced us. And so we got in the car and driving back into the park. And it's, it's just night out. And we, we park the car, turn off the lights. And as we step out, you, you literally could not see your hand in front of your face. It was so black. But as we, we walked and our eyes adjusted and we stepped into a clearing, you, you look up and, and thousands upon thousands of stars, like multiple col colors just covering the entire sky. I, I have never seen anything like it. It was absolutely brilliant. And those stars' brilliance were accentuated by the darkness of the night. They shone brightest when the night was darkest. And in a similar way, God's glory is seen more and more clearly against the backdrop of the evil, the dripping darkness of humanity. God doesn't need humanity's evil to be holy. He is always holy. But he reveals that as we see ourselves in our true state as unrighteous, but he is righteous. Amen. That being said, this leads to quite a bit of tension because God in his glory will not accept the false, fake glory of humanity. And so verses 7 through 9 are, are almost shocking, therefore, as we see God pouring out blessing upon blessing upon his people. Verse 7 starts with, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. And then the subsequent five lines describe how that plays out, how God loves his people. The first way that plays out is the second part of verse 7, which says, The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. A refuge describes a place of, of strength, of, of rest, of protection. When, when we hear this term, we think of a traveler in, in a storm who finds refuge under a cave or in an inn. Um, they're, they're at ease because of the refuge they find. And so the, the better the refuge, the greater the rest. The children of mankind, those that are called by God, therefore look to God alone for refuge. Jesus himself uses this verbiage when he expresses his desire to gather the children of Jerusalem together as a hen gathers her broad under her wings. Christ has called us to take refuge under his wings, to find rest in him. And there is no other true refuge other than him. The world tempts us to take refuge in things that almost seem good, friends, physical activity, a job, even, even such as, as a church, we can be tempted to make that our primary point of refuge, but we are like the unwise traveler who spots a place with no roof filled with bandits ready to rob him, and we go there instead of the fortress that is Christ. Jesus is creator, sustainer, king over all the universe. He has authority over all things at every single moment, and he offers true refuge to us. Psalm 46 says that God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains are thrown into the midst of the sea. Think about that verbiage. It, it, the earth is literally giving way. The mountains are being tossed into the sea. It's, it's apocalyptic. Like the earth is ripping apart at its seams. And yet the man of God, who takes refuge in Jesus, shall not fear. The better the refuge the greater the rest. Moving to verse 8, we read that God's people feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from your river of delights. This is language of abundant satisfaction and met desires. In God's house and in God's garden, he completely satisfies his people. And this is certainly a, a current reality. We can feast on God. Instead of buying food and drink from this world which cannot satisfy, we can receive free food, free drink, 
from Jesus Christ. Jesus describes himself as the bread of life, as the living water, and we are to find true rest and satisfaction in him. And this is This comes through meditating on his work, meditating on what he has done, that he willingly took the form of a man, that he patiently waited 33 years to die on that cross. He could have done it earlier, but he waited. He he went to the cross willingly. He was not forced, and he took on the wrath of God. That, That is how we can learn more and more to feast on the satisfaction that Christ provides. That being said, uh, the future satisfaction that we have to look forward to is infinitely greater. The language David uses here is very similar to language used in uh, Revelation to describe what heaven will be like. There, there will be a feast beyond imagination, where us as his church will be united as, as a bride to her bridegroom, having a wedding feast. We will be united to Christ. And from the very throne of God, from God himself, there will flow a river of water of life that will satisfy our souls. In love, God has appointed us before time began to spend eternity in him, with him. He is our true satisfaction. There is no other inheritance besides him. Right now, as we think about satisfaction, we know that the better the experience, the more satisfied we are. The better the the conversation, the the relationship, the the meal, the more satisfied we are. Well, we've already talked about how how God is is the, the perfect being. He is perfect. So he is the perfect experience, and therefore we cannot imagine the satisfaction that we will experience in heaven. Moving on to verse 9, David writes, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. David praises God for the the life he provides his people. He is the fountain of life. A fountain is is never-ending. It's it's always flowing. It seems like it will never run dry. God's life is a ever-flowing life. And in his light, do we see light? Light, in this sense, can be seen as as a glorious truth. Mankind, unlike God, has no understanding. We do not see light. We dwell in darkness. But by his grace, God shines his light on us, and we understand. So life and light work together, actually. The one who truly lives is the one who, who understands, and the one who understands is the one who has found true life. And these two related gifts are, again, through Jesus Christ. John 1.4 says, referring to Jesus, In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus came to save a lost, dark, dead world. Because of the great love with which he loved us, he shines light into our dead souls and gives us life in him. And that life is a physical life. It is by his grace that we breathe. It is by his grace that we eat. It is a spiritual life in that he raises us from our dead way of living into true life in him. And it is an eternal life in which we are guaranteed an inheritance through his blood that can never be taken from us. And again, while while we have a foretaste of this now, we'll know this more fully when we enter into eternity with him. That all the sin that so easily entangles, that prevents us from truly living, that prevents us from truly understanding, from truly obeying him and glorifying him and praising him and enjoying him will be stripped away. And that he himself will be our light. We won't need the sun anymore. We'll be that close to the light. So God is our refuge, our satisfaction, our life. And these are all true now, yet consummated fully when we enter into eternity in the presence of God. Yet we still have to ask the question, how is this possible? We have seen that nothing in us is attractive to God. He is holy. We are dark and not 
holy. We are unlovable. And yet, this is only possible because God, in his perfection, simply decided to love us. The brilliance of his glory and kindness outshines the darkness of our soul. And that fact, that his covenantal love, is an undeserved gift. That's what makes it so precious, as David says in verse 7. When we think about what is precious in this society, it is um, maybe, maybe a relationship, a, a spouse, or um, a very expensive diamond. Um, we, we deem something precious when it, we can't imagine life without it, or it's valuable is without the ability to be quantified. How much more precious are the eternal promises of God that he loves us, people who are unlovable? I said at the start that this was a precious contrast. And why is that the case? It is when, as his chosen people, when our wickedness faces off with God's steadfast love, his steadfast love wins. Our present and future are no longer defined by our wickedness, but on God's character. And this is seen in Jesus Christ. He flipped the contrast. Christ, who knew no sin, was completely perfect, took on sin, took on our sin. And we, who knew no perfection, received his righteousness. Therefore, his character, moving forward now and in all eternity, defines our situation and our standing before God, not our own. His holiness, therefore, is what we hope in. And this is a precious contrast because God does not give us what we deserve as a result. We actually get everything that Christ deserves. So the life, the satisfaction, the refuge that Christ deserves is what we receive. And this is great hope for if you are anything like me, um, when I'm tempted to despair, uh, when I'm discouraged over indwelling sin, um, when everything seems like I cannot follow God's commands and I have such weak faith, we hang on to what is most precious, most valuable, and that is Christ, and that we are defined by his righteousness, not our own. So the psalm has now worked through this contrast uh, between the wicked and God and God's steadfast love for his people. And now in the last three verses, David offers up a prayer to God and a sober warning. Verse 10 is the first part of that prayer, which reads, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. This is a prayer of, of desperate reliance. We've seen that without God's steadfast love, we are nothing. And so David is praying that he would not remove that steadfast love from his people and that his gracious hand would not be taken away from them. And while we know that, that because of Christ, as believers, we know that nothing separates us from his love, this is still a good prayer to pray. This is a necessary prayer to pray, to ask that God would not take his steadfast love from us. Now, why is that the case? I think two reasons. The first is that it prevents us from taking his steadfast love as a given. A daily practice of praying that prayer, do not remove your steadfast love from me, prevents us from viewing it as mandatory or a requirement or something we don't have to be grateful for. Secondly, this is just honoring and glorifying to God. In a similar way that the psalmist pray, hear my prayer, O Lord, we, we know God hears us, but we are acknowledging his gift to us, that he hears us, that he steadfastly loves us. And so we can grow in praying these promises. The second part of David's prayer is a petition for protection from wickedness and sin. Verse 11 reads, Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. David has reflected on the ways of the wicked. He knows the evil tendencies of their heart, and yet he is not too proud to assume he couldn't fall 
into wicked ways. He knows man's nature is to sin, and so he pleads with God for protection from that sin. And this echoes uh, our, our Lord's command to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, keep us from temptation, deliver us from evil. And the importance of this plea is actually accentuated by the brilliance of his steadfast love that we just talked about. First of all, who are we to respond to such steadfast love with living in sin? And so in light of his love, we pray for holiness. We pray to act in ways that are pleasing to him. The second is, sin mars our communion with God. It mars our ability to enjoy his steadfast love, to just delight in his steadfast love. And so the daily plea for his steadfast love to remain and for us to be removed, protected from wickedness and sin are two very practical steps we can take as a church. Lastly, in verse 12, uh, we come full circle and see the end result of the wicked man. We read, There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Those who do not take refuge in Christ, who pridefully continue in their wicked ways, will receive judgment. And the judgment that is deserved for not meeting God's glorious standard is death. And God is praised for his judgment. However, as believers, on top of that, we need to have tremendous compassion for those that are apart from God's grace because we were just like them. We were just like the wicked man. That is in our nature. Apart from God's grace, we would be the ones thrust down as with a sword, bleeding out, unable to rise. I'll repeat, we are just like them. And so we need to spend less time complaining that our non-believing friends don't agree with your logically laid out argument about religion. We need to spend less time judging our family for how they live their life and judging our friends instead of just proclaiming the gospel to them and having compassion on them. God has entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation. That is why we read the Great Commission at the end of every service. That is his mission to the church. As we see more and more how much we have been freely given, how much his steadfast love is so undeserved, then we will freely give what we have received to a world that desperately needs it. For the believer, however, our hope is that the glorious goodness of God covers over our wickedness. So to conclude, I want to encourage all of us to grow in the discipline of seeing Christ's steadfast love. Um, and I'm preaching to myself here as much as anyone. Um, and I call it a discipline because there's an intentionality to it. There's, there's an intentionality to, yes, focus on our, our, our sin and confess our sin. Yes, continue knowing more and more about God. But if we, we do those things that, and abandon, just staring at our Savior, we are missing out on his purpose for us. He has declared that we are to see and behold the glorious riches of his grace in Christ at the cross. And so the more we time spending on that, the more we will be changed. However, for many of us, um, this seems like a daunting task. Growing and loving God, that, that seems impossible. And that is actually an accurate assessment of oneself. We cannot love God. If it was for us to see that, that love, we would, we would fail. We'll grit our teeth and try harder and harder, but just sink deeper into despair. And so the hope we can leave here with is that God does not command anything of us. He will not equip us to do. God will enable us to see his love and to love him. It is to the praise of his glory that he does this. It is to the praise of his glory that he comes to his people and cultivates in them a deeper desire and affection for him. That is our assurance. For the sake of his name, 
for the sake of his glory, he is jealous to have a bride that loves him. And so we don't rest in anything else. We just rest in the fact that he will come to us and cultivate those deeper desires in our heart. And that is what we get to look forward to for all eternity, because he has saved us in part so that in the coming ages he may show us the inexpressible riches of his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And so this life, we struggle, we toil, but we have the the great hope that because of his glory, we will spend the rest of eternity beholding his grace and kindness to us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are holy. And simply breathing right now is more than we deserve. But yet you have gone way beyond that and you have sent your son as a sacrifice for our sins, bleeding and dying on that cross so that we may be free. Lord, we ask for the grace in our foolishness to to not continue to navel gaze at ourselves and our own sin, but to cast our eyes to the cross. Please come to us and cultivate in us desires to love you and deeper affections. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.